0: Man, good morning. Happy Mother's Day again. I was just, I couldn't help but reflect upon my mom. I haven't called her yet today. But my mom, and mom, if you're listening, happy Mother's Day. My mom raised seven kids. She had seven kids in ten years. And she was like that lady, but with seven kids. One time, when one of my little brothers uh, set my bunk bed on fire that I was sleeping in, she, and she literally, with Pregnant with number seven, picked him up and put him against the wall, knocked the stitches out of his head, and uh, I didn't cross her again. She's a tough lady, and I love her so. You know, Mother's Day can be a hard time as well. I know that there's uh, maybe some of you that that have um, have lost a child, um, some of you that have maybe not been able to get pregnant, um, some of you that have never been married and aren't pregnant. And I just uh, just want to acknowledge that God is—he's uh, made each of you fearfully and wonderfully, fearfully and wonderfully made him in, made you in Christ's image, and He is sovereign, and He's got a perfect plan. And whether you have children or don't have children, He's made you perfectly, and I want you to rejoice in that this morning. And I am very grateful for God's design. For uh, I'm very grateful for the mother of my children that compliments me so well. Is there any men that can second that amen, yeah, today we are going to get back into Second Corinthians last week, we started Second Corinthians chapter ten verses one and two, after taking a two week break from Second Corinthians. Uh, Pastor Chris finished up chapter nine three weeks ago, and chapters eight and nine were about the offering. Uh, Paul talked about the sacrificial giving in particular that the macedonian church a very poor people group where they gave they gave out of their poverty uh, they gave without compulsion and as we look at all nine chapters the first nine chapters of the second book of corinthians we see that it's a very instructive book that the apostle paul is hammering him on a few things but it's very instructive he's not he's not mad he's not angry he just really wants to see the church in corinth Walk according to the Spirit, to really honor the Lord in all they say and do. When we get to chapter ten, which we started last week, Paul takes a noticeably different tone. He takes a tone that is that he is uh, he's flat out ticked. And um, a lot of scholars think that chapter ten through thirteen, the last four chapters of this book, are really a, are a different letter altogether. And I'm not sure I see that. I'm not quite sure that it matters but we do know this that in verse 1 of chapter 10 Paul takes a very different tone and he starts that chapter off saying now I Paul myself beg you I entreat you so he is uh, he's getting tough in chapter 10 and who he's getting ch- uh, tough after is not the believers in the church that are desiring to honor and glorify the Lord he's getting tough with the the uh, unrepentant rebels that are in that church that are teaching false doctrine that are leading believers astray and that are slandering paul's name quite frankly they are uh, dragging paul's name through the mud they're telling uh they're telling the church in corinth that paul is not a true disciple that paul is teaching lies and paul quite frankly really doesn't care about defending himself if you look all through the epistles, Paul does not defend himself. He's a defender of the truth. He's a defender of the church. He's a defender of the name uh, of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But he does feel like he's defending himself here in chapter 10. And the reason it feels that way is that he is defending the office, the office of the apostle, not himself. Paul talked, starts talking in uh, chapter 10 about war. He takes on an obvious wartime mentality. And we see that all through the epistles where Paul talks about himself and us as Christians being soldiers and that we are in warfare and that we are enlisted by our commander in general, Jesus Christ. He says in the second uh, in second Timothy, he says he views himself as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, one who had suffered hardship in the battle and was fighting loyally to please the one who had enlisted him to be a soldier, his Lord. His life, again, was a constant battle. It was a battle to protect the truth and the gospel from assaults, to advance the gospel, to conquer the satanic realm of error, to preserve the honor and advance the glory of his commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. His battle was against demons. His battle was against false teachers. His battle was against the wolves that were infiltrating the church in Corinth and other churches. War and hardship consumed Paul's life. And I think we can all relate with that on a certain level. That the life, particularly as a believer, it's 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 a life filled with joy and hope and peace and power. But it's a battle. It's a battle. Because we live underneath the authority of the living, sovereign God. And we just can't get away and enjoy the things that we used to enjoy, can we? I know sometimes I try it. It just doesn't feel the same. So there's a battle. Also, we're persecuted. If we're bold in our faith like Paul was, if we're bold with our faith in the workplace, in our neighborhood, in our relationships, there's imminent persecution that's going to come. It's a battle. And I've got to ask myself, when there's when there's times when I'm not feeling the heat, it's usually times when I'm the most lukewarm, when I am on furlough, when I am uh, not engaging in the battle. So here here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to go through verses 3 through 6. And Paul is writing this letter, all, all 14 all fourteen chapters, 1 through 14. He's writing from the, the town of Ephesus. And uh, he uh, got word that these rebels are in the church in Corinth. So he's writing to them. And what he's doing basically is he's warning them. He's saying, I've heard about the way you're trying to destroy the church. And you need to repent or you need to leave. That's what he's saying to him. You know, Paul is being slandered, and more importantly, he is going after the people that are slandering the name of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, this letter that he's writing in Ephesus, he's sending this letter with Titus to the church in Corinth. And he's going to wait two to two and a half months, we're not sure exactly, somewhere in there, before he actually arrives in, in Corinth. So he's sending Titus from Ephesus to Corinth with the letter. So as we learned last week... Paul is a patient man. He's a soldier that has two characters. He's compassionate and he's courageous. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 together. And this is what we taught on we looked at last week. Paul says, "...now I, Paul myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence." With which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Bottom line here. This is the bottom line. Paul is saying that I am writing to you with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And meekness means power under control. Paul is saying, I've got the right and I've got the power to slam you, you rebels. But he says, I'm coming with power under control. I'm coming with the meekness of Christ, the gentleness and patience of Christ. You see, the Corinthians, the rebels in the Corinthian church saw Paul as that frizzy two-pound dog that I described to you last week. That little yapper that yaps from behind the fence. Yap, 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 bark, 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 bark. bark. And you get up to him, you open the gate, and he, and he darts. That's how they see Paul. And Paul is compassionate. He is patient. But another example we talked about last week Paul is a little bit like Popeye. Where he says I can only stands so much. And he says I can't stands no more. So he has he is a he is a man of courage as well. He says if you don't repent or you, and you don't leave uh, I'm coming I'm coming after you. So we saw Paul operating in the first two verses with compassion and courage. So the title of this two week series is Spiritual warfare, part one is the the good soldier, the characteristics of a good soldier, which are compassion and courage. Part two is our secret weapon. Paul had secret weapons. They're not so secret because he talks about them boldly throughout his word. If we're in a spiritual battle, as Paul suggests, what weapons do we use in war? What do we use? We're going to talk a little bit about that today. And the weapons that I know that I use a lot of times are weapons of the flesh. They're not weapons that are divinely powerful, as Paul's going to talk about. Let's pray again. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. And God, you know how I have struggled, how I've wrestled uh, with this passage this week. And Lord, you have not allowed me to present it in the way that I want to present it. And I just praise you for that. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives illumination to the text. I thank you for the great men and women over these centuries that you have given amazing minds to uh, decode, to uh, interpret your word. And God, I just pray that we would be noble Bereans this morning, that we would uh, examine the scriptures, and that you would uh, show us what it is you want us to learn. And that we'd not leave here today being merely hearers of the word of God, but doers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Corinthians, verse three. Paul talking to the rebels in Corinth. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. And I just I want to give a disclaimer. This is a verse that I had memorized about a year or two ago. And, and it's really ministered to me in a, in a big way. But I've memorized it out of context. And I was really excited when I saw that I would be able to teach this verse, that we'd be able to dig into it because it's been such a great verse in my heart. The Lord really used it. But we're, we're gonna talk about it in terms of the way Paul used it. And the scripture that I memorized is that we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we know as believers we're to meditate on scripture. We're to fill our minds and our hearts with things from the Lord. So that it will crowd out thoughts and speculations from the world. But what Paul's talking about here is we're going to learn is he is addressing these rebels. And how he is going to destroy these fortresses. And the fortress that we're going to talk about is the fortresses of the mind. So look at it through that lens. It's really an evangelism in my mind. It's an evangelism verse. How, it, how is it that we use these verses? How is Paul telling us? To attack if you will The lies of the enemy that are being perpetrated in the minds of people Throughout this world Does that make sense? We'll unpack it just a little little bit here Our secret weapons First part of verse 3 For though we walk in the flesh For though we walk in the flesh This is critical that we we understand this This is a play on words In verse 2 of chapter 10 Paul was accused of walking according to the flesh. And Paul is saying now here, he's saying, for though we walk in the flesh, there is a difference between walking in the flesh and walking according to the flesh. I am Dan Hardy right here walking in the flesh. All of you are walking in the flesh. Paul walked in the flesh. He's human. When we walk according to the flesh, we're walking in sin. And we're going to look at a few of these, uh, a few verses that tell us that. So first of all, the opposite of walking according to the flesh is what? To walk according to, to the Spirit. So those are the two things we want to look at this morning is, it's what's the difference between walking according to the flesh and walking according to the Spirit. And it says in Romans 8-4, Paul is talking to the Roman church, we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christians do not walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It doesn't mean that we don't blow it. But when we're walking according to the flesh, what that means is that our life is characterized by the practice of the same sins over and over. In Galatians five sixteen through 17, Paul says, But I say, believers, walk by the Spirit. Walk according to the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So the answer for walking according to the flesh is to walk according to the Spirit. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. Let's take a look at the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5.19. The deeds of the flesh. These are indicators that warn us when we're walking according to the flesh. We do it all the time. I do it all the time. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and likes like these. These folks are evidence of walking according to the flesh. And when there's times in our walk, times in our day, times in our week, month, and year, where these come out, you'll know that you're not walking according to the Spirit. In Galatians 5, uh, 24, Paul says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. And I would submit to you that if, if some of these characterize you, are characters of you on a day-in, day-out basis, maybe you're not the Lord's or maybe you just you're just not accessing the power of the spirit. How do we know when we're walking according to the spirit? It's when we when there's evidence of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5:22 and 23. But the fruit or the evidence of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So Paul is telling these rebels, these people that are trying to discredit him, they are saying, Paul walks according to the flesh, you can't trust him. And Paul is saying, I don't walk according to the flesh, I walk according to the spirit. Now we know that Paul blows it. If you think back, I think, is it Romans 6 where Paul says, why do I continue doing the things that I don't want to do? Why can't I do the things that I want to do? Well, the answer is, is in the access of the power of the Spirit of Christ and a desire to walk in the Spirit and to put off the desires of the flesh. Let's go back to chapter 10, verse 3, 2 Corinthians. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Remember, Paul's in a battle. And he's saying that even though I'm in this flesh and I've got access to the same weapons of the flesh that you do, I'm not going to fight that way. I'm not going to fight that way. We're going to skip around a little bit. We're going to look at verse 4 first. Because in order to... Let me read verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, Paul says, but they're divinely powerful. In other words, they are weapons of the Spirit. Their purpose is in the destruction of fortresses. Let's first start with understanding what he's talking about. We'll take a look at what the weapons are of the Spirit that are divinely powerful. But first, we've got to understand what to use these weapons for. And we need to use these weapons. Paul says to for the destruction of fortresses. A fortress is a very powerful image, particularly in ancient times. Oftentimes, a fortress was also called a castle. It was set up on a hill. It was made with two layers of enormous stone, an inside layer and an outside layer. This fortress was designed to be impregnable. It was designed to be a safe place, a place to preserve people, a place that could not be torn down by the enemy. So Paul is saying that these spiritual weapons are to be used for the destruction of fortresses. And the fortresses that Paul is talking about here is the fortress of the human mind. He's talking about the fortress of the human mind. And he's saying that the human mind, particularly the unregenerate human mind, the mind that has yet to bend the knee to Christ, is thick. It has lots of scars and calluses, lots of plaque built up. And it is tough. In fact, it is impossible to penetrate the unregenerate man with human weapons. It's impossible. You know, this word, it's the only place I could find it used in the New Testament. And it literally means a place of strength. A place which is essentially and inherently strong. What's behind this fortress? Why is it so important for Paul to break down this and destroy this fortress? What's behind it? What is it in the mind of man that Paul wants to destroy, destruct, demolish? We see that in verse 5. Paul says we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's the gospel, folks. The knowledge of God is the gospel. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So what Paul wants to destroy is the speculations, the arguments, the reasonings of unregenerate man and the pride of man. Speculations refers to Any and all human or demonic thoughts and ideas, opinions, reasonings, philosophies, theories, ideologies, and religions that refute or dilute the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what speculations are. These are the forts that people hide behind. Just a side note. The spiritual battle that Paul is talking about is not a direct confrontation of Satan. We're not called, there's nowhere in God's word, other than Jesus, does man confront Satan. Okay. It's God who does the battle. We're not called to convert demons. We're called to convert sinners. The battle is rather with the false ideologies men and demons propagate so that the world believes them. Folks, the battle is in the mind. The battle is in the mind. It is, it's in my mind as a believer having to think upon what's right and true and pure and lovely. And it's in the mind of the unregenerate person. Doomed souls are inside these fortresses. These fortresses called ideas of the mind. Paul is going to destroy these false arguments with the weapons that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And just by the way, these weapons are Scripture, prayer, and Christ-like love. And I'll tell you that they they all are intertwined. Sometimes as we attack these speculations, these arguments, we do it with loveless hammer of the Scripture at times. And there is all kinds of arguments out there against the gospel. They take all uh, kinds of shapes and forms. And people argue against the gospel in the form of the Big Bang, evolution, or whether there's not intelligent design. And there's all kinds of arguments that people have against the gospel, and we argue with them on their turf. There's a friend of mine, and a friend of some of yours, his name is Bob Fine. Some of you remember Bob. And I love Bob's testimony, and I think Danny might have a similar testimony. I'm not sure. But Bob was and is a smart guy. See, guys like me don't have to worry about these arguments, because I just... Okay, you tell me there's that, I believe you. Bob believed wholeheartedly in... He had a hard time believing in intelligent design. He believed in evolution and kind of the Big Bang Theory. And he had a mentor, a guy in college with Campus Crusade for Christ that said, Bob, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. And he continued to share the gospel that, Bob, you're a sinner, you're in need of a Savior. And Jesus, in the form of God, became man, shed his blood for you, laid his life down for you. And he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to live for him, to turn from your old self and live for Jesus. And Bob puts faith and trust in the only one that is worthy of his faith and trust. And guess what happened to Bob's ideologies? What do you think happened? The argument, folks, is not with human weapons. So the first thing that Paul is trying to destroy behind the fortress is the speculations and the arguments of men. The second thing that he's trying to destroy is every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. Pride. Pride the pride of man. And where do we see pride most? I see pride most, and I'm talking about in this unbelieving world. I see it in people with money, with lots of money, and with lots of power. And I see it with, I don't know. I know I'm going to offend somebody. (laughs) You know, it's just, comes with the territory. What you you see is what you get. But on Monday nights, there is a very cool lady. I admire this lady a lot. That has a broadcast going out to... It's now up to 2 million people. It was 700,000 three weeks ago. It's 2 million people every Monday night. And it's a church. It's a church of Oprah. And I admire this lady immensely. But she says that she is a Christian... Yet she completely denies the deity of Christ. She completely denies that Jesus is the only way. And the pride of and the power that comes from money that comes from stardom. And you know, my beef Nancy and I talked a lot about this. Nancy actually um, went to two of these, and her whole desire was to just be with people, which is fine. We can be with people. We should be with people. God tells us to be living and operating and spending time with non-believers. But this, my desire is to pray for this movement. My desire is to pray for somebody like Tom Cruise that is in Scientology. Yeah, they're leading people astray. But my beef is not with them. My beef, and your beef should not be with them. Okay, Our beef is not with the guy, the doctor that did an abortion. We should pray for these people. They're blinded. And the only thing that's going to stop this man from doing abortions, the only thing that's going to have Oprah on TV with 2 million people with her hands up and on her knees, with tears streaming down her face, and confession that Jesus is the only way, is a living and active word of God and the power of prayer. So can we stop hating just for a little while and stop loving? So what Paul is doing here is he is saying that these weapons... These spiritual weapons are designed to tear down fortresses. And what's behind these fortresses is, is the arguments, is the mind, the arguments of man and the pride of man. And we're not gonna win the argument. We're not gonna win the argument. The only thing that's gonna remove the scales from these people, from the scales from their eyes, the only thing that's gonna get these unrepentant rebels out of the church in Corinth are spiritual weapons. It's not the wisdom of man. Let's circle back to the weapons that Paul's talking about. He tells us what the weapons we're not supposed to use, and he tells us what the weapons that we should use. Verse four says, "The weapons of our warfare are not of the what? of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses." Are you tracking with me? The fortress is the mind of man. What's behind that fortress are the arguments of man and the pride of man. Now what weapons do we use to tear down these walls to get access to the mind of man? Christians, we should not fight the battle according to the flesh. They're ineffective. Paul tells us what the weapons of spiritual warfare are not. They're not of flesh. They're not human. Human weapons have no effect. They cannot fight the kingdom of the darkness of this world. They cannot fight spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. Human weapons cannot transform sinners. They cannot liberate souls from the kingdom of darkness. And human wisdom, human weapons cannot sanctify saints. One of our jobs as pastors is to equip the body of Christ, to make disciples, to encourage You know what? If we did that in our human wisdom, in our eloquence of speech or lack of eloquence of speech, you folks should run because we are here to sanctify each other. That's one of the primary responsibilities of the church. And the main way we can sanctify each other is through the word of God. So human weapons have no effect on the spiritual realm, no effect on the kingdom of darkness, no effect on Satan and no effect on the souls of man. So you ask, well, what are the weapons? If we can't use the weapons of the flesh, what do we use? Well, before I do that, let me describe what the weapons of the, of the world of the flesh are. We did this a little bit already. Human reason, human wisdom, arguments of rationalism. Make a note of 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 15. It says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You can argue till you're blue in the face, but if we can't use the sword, the Spirit of God, there's, the scales are never going to come off their eyes. So we can't reason. We can't use human wisdom. We can't rationalize with depraved minds. Other weapons of the flesh are human plans, religion or tradition. It's not good enough that my kids be Christian because I'm Christian. You know, little Johnny, this is who we are. We're hardies. We're Christians. I can't rationalize with my kids that way. My family that I grew up in is Catholic. And a lot of us were Catholic because that's what Hardys were. It's like we're Italian, we're Irish, we're Catholic. And that doesn't cut it. Because that leads you straight to hell. Catholicism doesn't. Because I believe that there are people in the Catholic Church that are genuinely saved. And I'm going to see in heaven someday. But rationalizing with religion does not save people. Showmanship... There's a lot of churches around this world that are using showmanship. That are tricking people to get them there and they're diluting the gospel. Showmanship is a weapon of the flesh. It doesn't mean that we can't have a nice facility. It doesn't mean that we can't have funny videos. It doesn't mean that we can't hand out flyers at the harvest festival. But it does mean that showmanship can never get in the way of the unadulterated word of God that saves. Amen. All human approaches are impotent weapons. And I had the hardest time finding some examples. The only thing I can think of is my father-in-law and my sister-in-law have a 4th of July bash at their house every year. And when it's nice out, it ends in a water fight. And I remember a few years ago, remember those, some of those water fights? And I remember I had the squirt gun of the 70s. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Mitchell shows up on the roof Joey shows up with a super soaker, and I'm just, I'm like getting hit with a fire hose. And this little squirt gun that I have had no effect. It is not going to help get them wet, and that's a horrible example. So just cut that out of the tape. So we took a look at the weapons of the flesh. What are the weapons that are divinely powerful? To destroy speculations and pride. The weapons are the sword of the Spirit. Scripture. Christ-like love and fervent prayer. Let's take a look at Scripture first and foremost. Paul knows his words and opinions are impotent and ineffective. So he attacks using the pure, unadulterated Word of God. Hebrews 4.11 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Meaning there's the word of God that convicts. And the word of God. By the power of the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that saves. Second Corinthians 4 says. Paul says we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness. Or adulterating the word of God. In other words, he's not trying to trick people. He's not watering down the word. But by the manifestation or the realization or the bringing forth of the truth, they're commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The only thing that he has put in front of them is the word of God. In Ephesians 6:17, we're all familiar with the verses that talk about the armor of God. There's one offensive weapon there, and that's the sword. Everything else is designed for defense. So it says in Ephesians six seventeen, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The second weapon is Christ-like love. Have you ever been whacked upside the head with the Word of God? Believe it! Believe it! It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm the one that's usually whacking people that way. Like I'm doing right now out of love I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I love you <laughs> Ephesians 415 Paul says speak the truth in love speak the truth in love there are a lot of Bible scholars out there that are yelling at people to repent and turn and these people are running because they see hypocrites that know the word First Peter two twenty three, Christ is the ultimate example of that. He was all about the Word of God. He was the Living God. He quoted Scripture all the time. And it says in verse twenty three of First Peter two, and while being reviled, he was beat. He was hung on the cross. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't revile in return. He didn't. Re- he didn't retaliate when he was suffering. He uttered no threats. You remember what he said on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. Is that your attitude? Is that your attitude with the neighbor that's living a, what you would consider, and I would consider a vile lifestyle? That you don't want anything to do with them because of their lifestyle? What do you think Christ would do? What did Christ do with the Samaritan woman? He told her to stop sleeping around. Stop searching for happiness in your marriage. He showed her that she was on a wild goose chase that would never end in anything but utter frustration. He knew he had the true gift of satisfaction. We've got that gift, folks. We are stewards, we are keepers of the manifold grace of God. And we can deliver it with a hammer or we can deliver it with the love of Christ. Verse in 1 Corinthians 5 has really convicted me time and time again. And I would suggest that we all Write this down and have a discussion in our families. And ask, what does this look like to live this out? And Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Corinthians? You know what the Corinthians are thinking? I guess I don't have to invite that neighbor over. I guess I don't need to have mutton with the guy down the street. Paul says... I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Paul says, don't hang out with the immoral people. Then he goes on to say, I didn't mean the people of the world. Here's what he meant. I didn't mean the immoral people of the world, the people that are covetous and are swindlers and are adulterers. For then you'd have to leave the world, wouldn't you? What do we expect from the world? By the grace of God go I. Where would I be without the grace of Christ and the Spirit of the living God in me? I'd be on a roadside somewhere. I'd be in prison. I'd be sitting right alongside Oprah and Tom Cruise. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Our job, put this on the fridge. We're not to judge outsiders. We're not to judge outsiders. They don't know any different. They can't act any different. They don't have the power of the living God in them. We do. There's no excuse for me. There's no excuse for you. But thankfully, we got a God that is, His mercies are new every day, right? Amen? In Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God calls us to obedience as Christians. He wants to see us walk in a holy way. And he gives us the power to do that. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. So our second weapon is Christ-like love. Scriptures first and foremost, that's our first weapon. But don't we dare take it to this world without the love of Christ. Our third weapon is fervent prayer. Fervent prayer. If we're going into the battle, armed with the sword, the Word of God, and desiring to walk according to the Spirit, with the love of Christ, and we've spent no time in prayer, we're going to get slaughtered. And I would encourage you folks, as as I pray that the Lord is encouraging and convicting all of us to get into the world, because after all, that's what we're here for. We're here because we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. First and foremost in our homes. Secondly, in this lost and dying world that we're in. Is to go out in community. One of the reasons that my beautiful, encouraging mother of my children got eaten up when she was at this Monday night thing is she went by herself. And I let her. And she came back bawling. She came back bawling. She came back kind of mad and kind of sad. And and we processed it. And she went from being mad to being compassionate. Because we talked about that these... Don't be mad at them. Ask for the compassion of Christ for them. And she still has a heart to be involved with this group group of neat ladies that need the Lord. But she's not going to go alone again. And if you think about the battle... Talk to Mark Babb or talk to John Baker afterwards. Even the, these little groups of, of Navy SEALs or the, the military guys that go out in small groups, they never go out alone. They never go out alone. They've always got each other's back. And one of the main ways that we can have each other's back is in prayer. If you can't go out with each other, if you know that Nancy's going somewhere or Lisa Thomas is going to the, to the nursing home or, or, uh, Joanne Topsley's going to the high school or wherever you're going. You're having a block party. Let other people pray for you. There's power in that. Amen? Power in that. So the third weapon is fervent prayer. I want to just read a couple of scriptures on that. Second Thessalonians 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Paul was in the battle. He's in the battle. He's probably the most godly man that has ever walked the earth. Christ was God. And he's asking for prayer. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men. So he's praying that that the word would go out true and clear and decisively. He's praying that people would be saved, and he's also praying for protection. Because that's the scariest part about it. And i got to tell you, that's where the biggest disconnect is in my head. How do I live in the world? How do I love my neighbors? How do I invite uh, coworkers over? I'm afraid of what they're going to say. I'm afraid of what they're going to do. I'm afraid of how they're going to act. So we need we need prayer for protection. What we don't need is to insulate ourselves from the world. We need to dive in, but dive in wisely with other people and in the power of prayer. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.25, brethren, pray for us. Paul was always asking other people to pray. And that's a question I'm going to continue to ask each of you as I interact. And I would love it if you asked me and each other, how can I pray for you? Write it down. Take it serious. Because this is warfare. And the living God of the universe is begging us to come to Him on our knees and let our requests be known to Him. Back to chapter 10, verse 5. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we're ready to punish all disobedience. I told you that this verse... I have memorized it out of context. I think there's still a personal application here because there's a lot of verses that talk to us about meditating on the Word of God. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. As Proverbs 23, 7 Somebody scream out to me the verse in Philippians that says to think upon what is true and right. Say it loud. Thank you. It says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. How do we know what's honorable? How do we know what's of good repute? How do we know what's pure and right? The word of God. That's how we know. So Paul says that we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He is going to be doing that with the rebels in Corinth. He is going to be encouraging them in a very strong way to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I know Paul does that in his own life as well. And I think we're going to finish right there. So would you bow your heads with me? And worship team, would you make your way up? Would you just, uh, with your heads bowed, just reflect upon what it is we're called to and what that looks like in your Jerusalem, that we're called to make disciples? We are stewards, each one of us, of the manifold grace of God. And are you using the weapons of the flesh exasperating yourself sending maybe donations spending time with organization and causes that at the end of the day does not cause people to bend their knee father we just love you so much I am so thankful that you drafted me that you pulled me into this army even when I am shaking my fist at You. And Lord, we recognize that salvation is a sovereign work of grace. and We're so grateful that You've called us into Your light and that you saved us from the pit of hell. And Lord, I just thank You that You removed the scales from our eyes for those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. That the ultimate battle of the mind has been won. Yet every day, Lord, we battle with the lies of the enemy. When we blow it, the enemy wants to tell us that you don't love us and that you don't forgive us. The enemy wants to tell us that we are hypocrites and we have nothing to offer. But we know from your word, God, that you say that once we are yours, that we are in your grasp, that you never, you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. That you don't condemn us in the sense that we are destined for an eternity with you. that We can't lose that salvation. We can't be condemned to hell after we're yours. We thank you as we learned a couple of weeks ago that you do lovingly discipline us. The process of sanctification that when we shake our fist at you, when we are meditating on things that we shouldn't be meditating on, when we are viewing things that we shouldn't be viewing God, that you uh, lovingly convict us and you lovingly uh, discipline us. So, God, I just trust that there uh, are pieces of this passage, God, that you want to use in each of our lives to make us look more like Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would convict us, encourage us, fill our sails as we leave here with the joy and hope of Christ. God, don't let us leave here with our tails between our legs. Don't let us leave here listening to the lies of the enemy. Let us leave here knowing and believing that we have a strong foundation. That even though the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. All we have to do is let you live in us and through us and not fight it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.